0: So, this is what we do John chapter 8. Somebody could give us a page number from the blue Bible at the back. 1074. 1074. So, if you've got a blue Bible from the back, it's 1074. If you'd like a blue Bible from the back, if you wave your hand, somebody will bring you one. John chapter 8 as Mark kindly read to us from verse 48 and let's pray Lord we have no greater need than that we should hear you speak to us and we are gathered here this morning with different thoughts and perhaps different distractions but we nevertheless pray that you would be here and that you would be the speaking God who changes lives by the power of his word show us jesus to our great amazement for we ask it in his name amen we're looking in the, into the bible john is a, is one of the four writers who tells us the story of the life of jesus and he tells this story in a very compelling and intriguing and rather wonderful way in the in what we nowadays call the eighth chapter he's been following Jesus through controversy and conflict and my introductory thought is this question who is Jesus Now I'm sure some of you have asked that question and come to a settled conclusion about it. But maybe not everybody here has done that. Certainly not everybody in the world has successfully answered that question. Who is Jesus? We've got him in history. We've got recording of things he said and did. Who is he? C.S. Lewis, the teacher of english and uh, was professor of english literature and a writer of children's stories Uh, i think it was him who came up with three possibilities uh, that jesus was bad that he was actually a bad person or that he was mad or that he was god I don't think that those three are completely watertight, but they are pretty strong contenders, that there really are only those three possibilities, that the Jesus in the Bible was either a bad person, or a mad person, or he was God. With that thought, let's look at the controversy that Jesus is in in chapter 8. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon possessed? See where I'm coming from? How would we answer the question as to who Jesus is? We would say, what's the evidence? What's the evidence to help us to reach a conclusion? In John's gospel, John would say, what's the testimony or what's the witness about Jesus he did things and he said things for example he said to a paralyzed man arise he said it and the man got up that's a word from Jesus and an action and in John's gospel he he gives us lots of words of Jesus for us to think about and he gives us the actions what John says the signs and a sign points to something and a sign tells you something and the fact here that Jesus said arise and the man got up John says now you take a good look at that because that's telling you something about who Jesus is that's showing you something that's pointing to something and that's just one example he also For example, fed 5,000 people in the desert. He also walked on stormy water. He also opened the eyes of the blind. And he also raised Lazarus from the dead. So he did those things. There's the evidence. And the question remains, so who is Jesus? Who is he? Is he bad or mad or mad? or God and before we dive into it let me just say of those choices when we're saying God we don't mean any old God we mean particularly the God of the Bible the Lord God in English translation you'll find the word Lord in capital letters. If you were to pronounce it in Hebrew, the particular name that the God of the Bible has is Yahweh, and I'll put the Hebrew letters up there if that's of any interest to you, but that is the name of God. He's not Thor or Wodin or Krishna or Ganesh. The, The God of the Bible is the Lord, Yahweh and what's particular about this bible what sort of characteristics does he have well in the book of exodus he says my name yahweh means i am who i am so say i am has sent you is what he said to moses he's the god of the history of israel the god of king david and king solomon you remember it was king solomon who built the temple and the whole idea of the kingdom the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of God on earth as it then was. It had a, an actual headquarters on earth in those days, which was Jerusalem, and there was a, a temple in Jerusalem, which was God's physical headquarters. Of course, it's not like that nowadays. That's how it used to be. The God of the, of the Bible is the God who sent his people into exile. That's part of the history of Israel because he is holy and they were disobedient he sent them away and he himself went away you might remember in the in Ezekiel there's a vision of the glory departing from Jerusalem because God is sort of fed up with his people and he he packs up his bags and leaves them and God is the God who promises a return from exile so all the promises that God's made to his people he says they won't just fizzle out They will be fulfilled, perhaps not in the way you're expecting, but there is a promise that I will rebuild my city, uh, I will repopulate it, I'll bring all the nations into it, I will bring new life where there was death. And of course, Christians believe that that Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. But anyway, that's the God whom we're talking about. Are you still with me? Yeah, thank you. so let's look into the passage itself the what we have is a set of or a a conversation a set of remarks made by the two groups of people the jews and jesus so the jews say something to jesus and jesus replies and typically the jews make an objection uh, but you this or but you that and or a contradiction of Jesus. You shouldn't be this, you shouldn't be that. Uh, and Jesus characteristically answers. So if they've asked a question, he will give an answer. Uh, sometimes he will reason with them. And sometimes, despite the fact that they are contradicting him and being a bit obnoxious, Jesus replies with an offer or a promise like he did when he said, for example if anyone is thirsty on the last and greatest day of the feast jesus stood and said in a loud voice if anyone is thirsty let him come to me and drink whoever believes in me as the scripture has said streams of living water will flow from within him which is an offer isn't it to thirsty people to come to him and drink so those are the sort that's the way the conversations are tending to go And in chapter 8, verse 48, this is the objection that the Jews make. So what do they say? They say, aren't we right, verse 48, in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? A bit like somebody coming up to you and saying, wouldn't I be right in saying, you've got an ugly face and you're really stupid? Uh, It's not the sort of thing you generally say to people. Not a polite way of, it, of, of continuing a conversation, but what they say is, aren't we right in saying you you're, you you're a Samaritan, and you have a demon? So let me just explain who the Samaritans were. The Samaritans were a, a racial group to the north of Israel. They shared some of Israel's heritage and land. Uh, and to a certain extent, their their religion. But the Jews looked on them as being a a mixed up race, an unclean race, people they would have nothing to do with. You remember when Jesus met the Samaritan woman, she was really surprised that Jesus talked to her at all and that Jesus suggested drinking from the same cup. She was absolutely amazed because the Jews have nothing to do with the Samaritans. So they're saying to Jesus, well, that's what you are. You're a Samaritan and you have a demon. And suppose they're saying to him that you are false, you're a sort of mixed up, unclean sort of person. To say somebody has a demon is to say that you have spiritual power, but the power comes from a really bad place. And I think there's the implication of madness as well That your brain is mixed up something's taken over you know you've got mental health problems it's it it's an insulting way for them to say these things and I think they're not too far away from saying you're bad and you're mad now how does Jesus answer those questions verse 49 well first of all he answers the charge that he has a demon by saying I don't I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus. I am not. You are wrong. And it's interesting the way that he continues his answer because he now starts to talk about his relationship with his father. Just follow what he says. I honour my father and you dishonour me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I tell you the truth: if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That seems to move the subject on, because they hadn't been talking about death. But you see how Jesus answers this. He says He talks about his relationship with the father, which is about him being God, actually. So it's worth taking a careful look at the uh, the way he describes this and he talks about his relationship with the father and I put it in a little swirl of arrows and words on the screen which I'll explain he says there is a, a dynamic a relationship between the son and the father and this is how it works I honor my father whatever I do My motive is to honor my father, says Jesus. There's a word for honor in this case. It's me, And he puts a negative in front of it and says that I honor my father, but you negatively honor me. You dishonor me. Let's come to that in a moment. Verse 50 I am not seeking glory for myself. So I put a little arrow swirling round to say, does Jesus himself seek his own glory? Is that the way he does it? And I'm going to strike that out because that's not what he does. Jesus says, as a matter of principle, I don't seek my own glory. I seek my Father's glory. And then he says, there is one who seeks it and he judges. So, and this is talking about his father. So he's beginning to uh, spell out for us a very rich relationship between the son and the father. I don't operate on my own, trying to build myself up, trying to say how wonderful I am. I don't seek my own glory. What I do is I seek the father's glory and the father he delights to seek my glory so that's how I get glory I get it as the father seeks to uh, glorify me and he also judges now we need to fill in a blank there now what is he judging I think we would say that the father is judging attitudes for example what the Jews are saying My father is judging that. And the father is judging situations. How is it that you have come with this sort of attitude towards me? My father judges that. And we could say the father judges people. And he's looking into hearts and saying, is this right? What is that heart doing? Why are you thinking that? Is this a good attitude that you have? And Jesus mentions his father in this connection too my father seeks my glory and he is at work judging so don't think it's a trivial thing or a pointless thing uh, what you make of me the father's watching you in this now let's look at the human responses or how this affects people who are not the father and the son well we've got two possible responses to Jesus and the first one Jesus has already mentioned you dishonor me just as it would be insulting for somebody to come up to you look you in the eye and say uh, you're ugly and stupid Uh, these people have come up to Jesus and said you're bad and you're mad and Jesus says you are failing to give me the honor that I deserve because I am not bad, I am not mad, I am God. And simply to come the way that they came was, as Jesus says, to fail to honor him. That's one possibility. And the second possibility is the one that Jesus mentions where he produces this remarkable equation where a sinner like you and me plus Jesus' word means that death is removed. Did you spot that in what Jesus said? He said, I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What an amazing thing to say. He's just been insulted. Instead of getting angry, thinking might punch them, Jesus says, I'll tell you something. Anyone who keeps my word will never see death that's a remarkable statement we're going to think about it a little bit more in a moment but let me ask you what you make of Jesus at this point what do you make of Jesus who do you say he is are you saying that he is not worth honoring perhaps to say as they did he's mad and Jesus says you completely misunderstand who I am you completely misunderstand who I am you fail to honour me or the alternative that Jesus is mentioning here do you keep his word do you hang on the words of Jesus the promises of Jesus believe them keep them in your life live your life according to them it's not just earning something it's believing and acting in line with that belief because Jesus says here if anyone keeps my word he will never see death what a remarkable promise that is that death will have no power That even if you die physically, you will rise again, is how Jesus explained it later on. That even as you believe, you have eternal life which can never be taken away from you. What a statement. I think only God could make that sort of statement. And which of those two responses is yours? Let's move on. Well, they, they, they think that Jesus has just proved that the, that the Jews were right all the time because verse 52, at this the Jews exclaimed, well, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Now we know it. You just proved it with your own mouth. You're definitely mad or bad or both. And here's how they carry on talking about this. They go back to their own heritage and they talk about Abraham. Abraham, as you know, is the father of the Jews and he he stands way back in history in a very important place. Uh, Also a father of Islam, if I've understood that correctly. Now they refer to Abraham. Abraham died and so did the prophets, yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. So let's work that out. There's Abraham, the very father of the Jewish race. There are the prophets, who you could say were the spiritual superstars of uh, the Hebrew scriptures. And Jews would say, our religion is the best religion has ever been because God invented it. And they'd be true to say that. Jesus himself said, salvation is from the Jews. So it's a little bit insulting to all the rest of our cultures because I think very few of us in this room would be a, a, of Jewish descent. So all our cultures, all our efforts at religion, uh, Jesus says, no, not much there. Salvation is from the Jews. Best religion ever but they all died Abraham died the prophets died and they say well there you are you see how can you possibly say that you are better than that this is the equation that Jesus presented anyone even you and me if we keep Jesus word enter into deathlessness will never see death or as uh, the, the Jews correctly rephrase it will never taste death Je- so notice what Jesus is saying he's not saying that if you follow me you're going to be very rich it's not a promise about wealth and it's he's not saying if you follow me you'll never get ill it's not a promise about health and he's not saying if you follow me, you'll make a million dollars. It's not a promise about success. But what it is a promise about is the long term spiritual future. You will not die. Death, which for everybody else is a complete barrier which casts a shadow over the whole of their lives. What you're living for, you know you're going to die. Jesus says that barrier is removed. You can look beyond death to a personal, wonderful, glorious future alive. That's what Jesus is promising. And you can see that the Jews are working this out. That means, Jesus, that you are saying you are greater than Abraham. That's what it means, isn't it? You are greater than Abraham. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. So the next question they ask makes a lot of sense Who do you think you are? More literally, who do you make yourself? Who do you make yourself? What are you making yourself to be? Greater than Abraham? You must be mad. You're, you're making yourself up, not just to be a superhuman being, but you're, you're making yourself up to be, well, I don't know, something ridiculously great. Now, is he mad? Is he mad to claim to conquer death? Because that's what he's claiming. He's claiming he has the keys of life and death. Is he mad to claim that this is encapsulated in keeping his word? Now, if, he, if he'd said, if you do yoga and meditation or something, maybe you say, well, that's, oh yeah, I can see, I can, well, or if you take, take particular medication or drugs, then you can avoid death. But he doesn't say that. He says, what I'm looking for is people who hear what I'm saying, believe what I'm saying, trust it and live by it and that's the way to conquer death is that mad? it's certainly not a normal thing to say is it? to be honest if you walked down London Road and found somebody saying that to you tomorrow I think you would be pretty sure that they did have some sort of problem And you would do best to ring 101 as quickly as possible. But is that true of Jesus? Do you know? He raised Lazarus from the dead. He said to a dead man, Come out. And he'd been dead for days. And the chap came out. Jesus does have the power to conquer death by his word. And he himself was raised from the dead there is very, very good evidence that that's true. So is he mad? Maybe not. Is he bad? Is he talking about, is he he talking about the sort of escape from death, the sort of zombies and the undead and all these sorts of things that are on movies which I don't particularly want to watch myself. Is it that sort of bleh, creepy, creepy thing? And it isn't, is it? There's nothing creepy about Jesus. If you actually read the things he said and the way he related people, you will find everything is wonderfully clean. It's not impersonal to do with raising up uh Animated flesh and corpses and zombies like there's a computer game that's to do with that. Maybe even Adam knows what it is. Uh, is there a computer game where you there's many, there's many. Too many too too many to mention. But that's all impersonal. It's all sort of animated corpses and all that sort of thing. Didn't mean to frighten you there. But the the, the way Jesus does it is always people he's not saying animated corpses he's saying, you'll see your friends Abraham and Isaac and Jacob you'll sit down at the meal table with them it's all to do with people the value of people and the cleanness of it is because Jesus went to enormous trouble to clean everything up now you might know or you might not know in the Bible the most polluting an unclean substance is blood. And I can also tell you that in the Bible, the thing that has the most powerful cleansing effect is blood, the right blood, sacrificial blood. And Jesus died on the cross to provide cleansing blood, to make all his promises clean to make people clean, to make the future clean. So it's not bad that he's talking about. It's clean and wholesome and good. Or is he God? At the end of his gospel, John writes, these things are written that you, may be, that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name and John says that's the whole reason I've written this to persuade you to convince you to reason with you to give you the evidence and the testimony that you could actually believe that he is the son of God don't think John is saying you just got to believe it because I say so I think he's saying think it through I'm presenting you with the evidence I'm going to treat you as a sensible person I'm gonna treat you as a thinking person. I'm gonna treat you as a person who's who's grown up enough to to listen to arguments, weigh them up. And these are the arguments about Jesus Christ, and I think they're convincing. And if you believe, you have life in his name. Let's go a little bit further. Verse 54. And Jesus is, again, telling us about his relationship with his father. And what he's really doing is telling us about his godness. He's not claiming that he is the father. The Bible doesn't teach in a very simplistic way that Jesus is God and that's all there is to it. The Bible teaches the godness of Jesus in a very rich way. And says that there is the Father and there is the Son and there is the Holy Spirit in a remarkably beautiful relationship together, such that Jesus is God, but the Father is God, and Jesus the Son relates to the Father in a certain rather beautiful way. And that's what he's telling us about here. So look in verse 54. Jesus again says, I don't glorify myself I'm not telling you these things so that you out of a selfish motivation verse 54 if I glorify myself my glory means nothing so I'll again strike out this little bit on the screen where the son glorifies himself he says I don't do that my father whom you Jews claim as your God is the one who glorifies me the father glorifies me And now he goes on to say some more about his relationship with the Father. Though you do not know him, I know him. You don't know him, but I do. I know the Father. I have a complete knowledge of the Father. I've seen the Father. I've been at the Father's side. Therefore, I'm equipped to make him known to you. And verse 55, he says, You do not know him. I know him. If I said I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Do you notice that phrase has cropped up before? Jesus is inviting us to relate to him the same way that he relates to his Father. I know the Father and I keep his word. It's a remarkable thing, isn't it? That Jesus has a relationship with his Father where words matter. And the words that the Father gives to Jesus, Jesus receives and believes and uses as the basis of what he does and obeys. I keep his word. And then he says this about Abraham your father Abraham well you call him your father and in a sense he is your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day or perhaps more literally he rejoiced at my day he saw it and was glad a couple of strong words for rejoicing there Abraham was overjoyed to see my day says Jesus Is he mad or bad or what? Abraham was overjoyed to see my day. I don't think anybody's completely sure whether this is recorded in any particular incident in Abraham's life. So this is just a suggestion, but I can tell you, which I read right at the beginning, there is an occasion where we know that Abraham laughed. And there, there it is, he, he, he fell to the ground laughing and he laughed at the thought that he, he and his wife would have a child and they were both old so there's he, he thinks his wife Sarah the next time she goes to hospital it'll be for the geriatric ward but God says no next time she pops into hospital it'll be the maternity ward and Abraham <laughs> he, he laughs I say whether out of incredulity or amazement or, or what but it's just laughable incidentally the child's name uh, Yitzhak means he laughs the child was given the name he laughs. And Abram, that's what his name was at that moment, and Sarah, which is what her name was, both had a little laugh put in their names. So Abraham became Abraham with a ha in it, and Sarah became Sarah with a ha in it. So the two ha's actually became part of their names. I don't know whether that was the bit that Jesus is referring to, but here's certainly something in which Abraham laughed. And I want to suggest to you, it is a suggestion, what do you think? That Abraham, in that moment, in the power of God, was able to see something looking forward. And perhaps what he could see in his immediate mind was the birth of a child. And to think, that is, uh, that's God. That's amazing. God can bring life out of death. Our body's as good as dead. Abraham can bring li- uh, God can bring life out of that. God can bring a child out of nowhere, as it were, to do this work to further His purposes. And I wonder whether, in some sense, Abraham looked even beyond that. And his eyes—you know—when you look on a shop window, sometimes you can see the reflection of yourself, but other times you can look through, through the shop window and see what's in the window. People actually come come and stand outside our house in Shaftesbury Road and comb their hair and see whether their eye makeup's okay because the windows are quite shiny and the the sun falls on them in a certain way. And then then they look through and say, oh, there's Mr. and Mrs. Wells there looking at us, wondering what we're doing. And I wonder in a sense whether Abraham's eyes might have viewed through this incident to see what Jesus says, my day. And then I wonder which day Jesus had in mind. Because there is a count a countdown going on in John's gospel towards a day. And the day that it's counting down to is the day Jesus died on the cross. Because that's the day when Jesus sorted all this out and did what needed to be done and cleaned up what needed to be cleaned up and smashed open what needed to be smashed open and guaranteed what needed to be guaranteed and signed off what needed to be signed off. That's the great day he did it, but he died on the cross. And Jesus commented on that. Do you remember he said something on that day? Do you remember what he said? It is finished. And I'm still among the regions of speculation and suggestion here. I wonder if Jesus is saying, There's a sense in which Abraham saw that. And when he laughed, he wasn't just laughing at the idea of having a baby. He was laughing at the idea of Jesus finishing that all. (laughs) Amazing! Well, I'm gonna ask for the third and final time what you make of Jesus. Was he mad? The chronology makes him look stupid, doesn't it? You, you must be mad. <laughs> Abraham seeing you, you seeing Abraham. I mean, it's ridiculous. The age, the time, it's all impossible. And yet, the very thing we're talking about, Abraham saw an impossible thing happening in his life. The whole of the Jewish race is based on that impossibility of the baby Isaac being born. So it's not mad to think of God doing miracles at all. Is Jesus bad because he's saying I'm greater than Abraham? For anybody else to say that I think would be unbelievably proud and vain you're so vain there was a song wasn't there you're so vain you probably think this song is about you which of course it was uh, and so if, if Jesus is is saying you could say to Jesus you're so vain you think the bible is about you but actually it is I don't think it's vanity and Jesus sort of puts the the tin hat on it by what he says next he says well, they say to him, you know, you are <laughs> you are really off the wall, Jesus. You are not yet fifty years old, said the Jews said to him, and you've seen Abraham. He must be crackers, bonkers. And Jesus answers, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born Do you notice the next two words? Before Abraham was born. I am before Abraham was born I am do you remember what I said about God at the beginning what his Hebrew name is there it is I've written it in Hebrew so that you can read it I am I am who I am and Jesus is saying before Abraham was I am. It is amazing, isn't it? If we believe, we're talking about new life, we're talking about death reversed and removed. But actually they didn't believe. Do you notice what they did? They picked up stones to stone him, which is what you do if there's somebody who's so bad and mad that he needs to be got rid of. And that's what they, that's the conclusion they came to. Do you notice what Jesus did next? When they didn't believe, he hid himself. And what else did he do? He hid himself and he slipped away from the temple more literally he departed from the temple he hid himself and sometimes God hides himself sometimes we can treat God in such a way that in the end he says well I'm (laughs) I'm not going to listen to you and when you say I need you I'm not going to be there and when you say, I want, to be, I want you to be close, I'm not going to be close. Sometimes God hides himself for good reasons. And Jesus is uh, entirely consistent with that when Jesus says, well, if you're not, you know, I've spent two chapters debating with you, giving you sensible answers. And at this point, you've still concluded that I'm not worth living. I'm going to hide myself from you bit scary really isn't it because if you are yourself in the process of saying to God no don't want you don't want you not going to listen to you you better be careful because if he hides himself there'll be a day when you'd want him to be there but he's not to be found he hid himself and he departed from the temple which is exactly what the glory of God did in the days of the exile the glory of Departed. That's scary. Let's sing together. We're going to sing number seven hundred and eleven.